This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. We're in um, Borough Park. We're on 13th Avenue and 50th Street. Uh, we're standing on the corner in front of Eichler's Books. That's Ayala Fader. She's an assistant professor of anthropology at Fordham, and she's been researching the culture of that Brooklyn neighborhood since she was in graduate school. Borough Park's a mostly Hasidic community in South Brooklyn. Its neighbors include Flatbush and Bensonhurst. And it's one where, walking down the street, you might hear a lot of a language that you might not hear a lot of elsewhere, Yiddish. Actually, those of us who live in New York City hear a fair amount of Yiddish, both peppered into our regular speech in the form of words like chutzpah and nosh, and also in the streets. Out of the 179,000 people who speak Yiddish at home in the United States, New York City has 63%. But even so, a place like Borough Park can still seem surprisingly foreign. From what I've seen, different wigs have different names. You call them by different names. And you can get your wig custom cut after it's uh, washed and prepared. And there's a huge range of how much wigs cost and how short, how long, all of that, whether they're human hair or not. I heard about Ayala Fader's research more than a year ago and I'd been trying to get her to come and talk with me for quite a while. A couple weeks ago, she was ready to talk about her work, and she also took me for a walk on Borough Park's main shopping street, 13th Avenue. I'm really interested to see how much change there's been. Even from last year, there are a lot of new stores that have just opened up. It's really thriving here. We'll hear more from Borough Park throughout the show today, but for now, let's talk to Ayala Fader about what she's been doing in the neighborhood. Ayala Fader, welcome. Thanks. So tell me about your project. My project is an ethnographic study of Hasidic women and their daughters, mainly some young boys also. And it's a study of how Hasidic girls learn to become the next generation living here in New York. And you were in a community in Brooklyn, right? Yes, in Borough Park, Brooklyn. This is something that's right under our noses because it's right in the city, but it's not something that I think that a lot of us have thought a great deal about. How did you come to do research on this and in this community? Well, I started in graduate school interested in language. And the more I read about Hasidic Jews, the more I realized that no one actually knew very much about what was going on linguistically in Borough Park, among Hasidic Jews in general, in all the neighborhoods, mainly in Brooklyn. I grew interested in what was happening with Yiddish. There was some studying of Yiddish up at Columbia University and at the YIVO, the Social Scientific Institute for the Study of Yiddish. But there was very little on-the-ground knowledge of how Yiddish was being used by really the only speakers of Yiddish, which is Hasidic Jews. So I began to read, and I visited, and then little by little, I gained a network of diverse women, and I was in a school there. And I basically hung out for two years doing research with mothers and their daughters. Give me a little background on this community. Who, Who are these people, and also where is Borough Park in Brooklyn? Borough Park is in the south of Brooklyn, the southwest of Brooklyn. There are really three major Hasidic neighborhoods in Brooklyn. There's Williamsburg, which is primarily Hungarian Hasidim. Satmar is the biggest group there. There's Crown Heights, which is where Lubavitchers primarily live. And then there's Borough Park, which is a really diverse neighborhood. All kinds of Jews live there. So Hasidic Jews, um, Hasidism as a movement started in um, Central Europe in the mid-18th century. And it was, um, it's a messianic movement. It's also a movement that some people call democratizing. It was a movement that was not elite. There, at that time, mainly elites studied the Torah, and rabbis had a lot of power. This was a movement that said that anybody could reach God through ecstatic prayer. It 
really developed its own social organization. It's organized around Rebbies, who are these charismatic leaders and who are dynastic. Their sons inherit their role. And it spread throughout Eastern Europe, gaining power at a time when there was a lot of contention among how Jews should be. There was a lot of opening up in Europe at certain points between you know the 18th century and then up through the interwar years about should Jews be citizens, should Jews be like everybody else in Europe. There were rules against Jews, but in some places, Jews were being invited in to participate. So Hasidism was a traditionalist movement in some ways, and yet it was also quite radical for its time. And then the majority of Hasidic Jews were killed in the Holocaust because of Polish Jewry, um, was basically wiped out. And after World War II, Hasidic Jews, really the leftover refugees in a way, immigrated to the United States and other urban sites transnationally. There's a community in Britain, there's a community in South Africa, all over, usually in urban sites. And there they've tried to repopulate their communities and really reconstruct. There's been a lot of interesting work lately that's shown that Though people after the war in the 1950s predicted that Hasidism would die out and that those Hasidic Jews would assimilate like the Jews had done before them in North America, in fact, Hasidic Jews have become increasingly observant from the 1950s to the present. We'll talk about this more in a second, but these these communities, a lot of people don't really speak English. Is that correct? Well, language in these communities are gen- is gendered. Boys and men primarily speak Yiddish. They have to learn some English. And as they get older and get married and have children and frequently go out to work, their English improves. But it's really women who are the primary speakers of English. One of the things that I saw in my research was that young children are bilingual Yiddish-English speakers, both boys and girls. But once girls begin to enter first grade, they shift and they start speaking more English than Yiddish. And boys remain really Yiddish dominant. And one of the puzzles that was interesting to me as I was researching in the community was why girls would want to shift. Were they trying to be more like Gentiles? Were they getting lured by the outside world since English seems to be a sort of symbol of um, the secular world, secular uh, New York? And one of the things that I discovered in my research is that, in fact, the English that the girls and women were speaking wasn't exactly standard English. It was more of what I'm calling a Hasidic English, which is English with a lot of influence from Yiddish and from Hebrew. It sounds different. There's different vocabulary words. Sometimes the order of the sentence, the syntax, sounds quite Yiddish to a Yiddish speaker. And in fact, women can recognize each other through their language in English so that they maintain some fluency in Yiddish, mainly as a baby talk, a way to talk to little kids in Yiddish, a sort of simplified Yiddish. But then um, increasingly their English is this mixture, a syncretic mix, which is taking features from Yiddish, from Hebrew, and from English, and creating really a new variety of language. Now, living in New York, we do hear Yiddish words probably sprinkled more into the language than um, than you would hear elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But I know, at least for me, Yiddish is something that's it's a little bit mysterious. Can you give me a little bit of a primer on Yiddish and where it's spoken? Sure. Yiddish is originally, people think, that it originated in what's now part of Germany and parts of France. And it, when Jews immigrated to this area, they took the variety of German that was being spoken, and they transformed it into a Jewish language. So there's a lot of German to the language, but it's written 
in um, Hebrew orthography. So there's it's Hebrew letters with a very strong base of German. But then Jews from that area, after a thousand years, began to migrate east. Um, the language acquired a lot of Slavic elements, too. So it's a mixture of Hebrew, Slavic, German, and some other Romance elements to the language that it acquired while it was really being born in that area of Germany and, and France. It was the primary language of a huge number of Jews in Eastern Europe before World War II, but then with the Holocaust, most of the speakers of Yiddish died. There was a thriving secular Yiddishist movement with its own literature and its own brand of radical politics. And those Jews who immigrated to the U.S., either before the war or after, eventually did not pass on Yiddish to their children. So that variety of Yiddish is no longer spoken. There's been a small resurgence, which is interesting, among the grandchildren of those Yiddish speakers who now like to take Yiddish in college sometimes, really sort of looking at Yiddish as another way to be Jewish. But that's very different from the Hasidic use of Yiddish. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. This is Eichler's Books, which is the seems to me like the only and biggest bookstore in Borough Park. I could be wrong. I come here a lot to look at the kids' books. There's Yiddish and English books. There's also games. Over here is Mitzvah Mention, which are little dolls that show good people around the neighborhood. So there's a, a fireman, there's a doctor, but they're all Orthodox Jewish men with long beards and payas, the side curls. There's also Mitzvah Kinder which are good little children. Again, almost like um, little people. You know those things for kids, for American kids? There's those fat plastic little figures, little people. But this one is um, about Hanukkah that's coming up, and it shows an Orthodox father, mother, sister, and brother, I think. And then there are these big mats. Um, very, again, very similar to more North American mainstream kids' games, um, which show towns, homes um, with people, but all the characters are marked as orthodox. The women are dressed modestly, the men cover their heads, and in the middle of the home there's a Sabbath table that they're all sitting around. Today on the show we're visiting Borough Park, Brooklyn and talking about life there with my guest Isla Fader. Fader's an assistant professor of anthropology at Fordham and she's working on a book about her research in Borough Park's Hasidic community. Let's get back to that conversation. This might sound funny when we're talking about Brooklyn because it is part of New York City, but what is the culture of the Hasidic communities in, in New York City and especially Borough Park? One of the interesting things about Hasidic Jews in Borough Park, the neighborhood that I spent time in, is that it's not an isolated community. It's not people often compare Hasidic Jews to Amish. And in some ways, there are some parallels, but Hasidic Jews are living in a, quite a diverse neighborhood, and even though there are many, there's a large Jewish population in Borough Park, there are lots of other people living in the neighborhood. There are Italian-Americans right next door to Borough Park. There's Sunset Park filled with Chinese. Just on the other side, there's a huge Latin American community. So it's quite a diverse neighborhood. In general, one of the most interesting findings for me was that Hasidic women in particular participate quite actively in the world around them. They often work in the Hasidic community and sometimes out. They buy ready-made clothes, even though they dress differently than the majority of people do who are not Hasidic. How, how far do girls usually go to school? They go through high school, and then there's teacher seminary 
that some girls can go to depending on how the family feels about higher education. And an interesting development more recently is um, Touro College, which is a college nearby, has been really catering to the community and offering gender-segregated night courses so that a girl, if her family agreed um, and it was okay with her, the rest of her community, could attend a night school and get a higher degree. But that's a relatively recent move. And um, from what I've heard from several friends in the community, it's acceptable because it's an economic necessity. You need a higher degree often, and a girl can earn much more money if she can have a master's, let's say, in speech therapy which is a a popular one because you can make your own hours. And even boys who finish also go through high school called yeshiva, and then the goal is to continue studying while usually their wife works. So it's really the reverse of many more traditional communities where it's often the wife who is at home and the man who goes out into the world and works. In this case, it's men who study sacred texts. So they're really the bearers of tradition in a lot of ways. And it's women who protect men. Their mandate is to build this protective gate around men who are studying Torah for the benefit of the whole community. But after a while, when a woman has a few children, it's often that the man goes out to work and then the woman stays home. So there's a lot of interesting sort of challenges to expectations of how gender in a quote-unquote traditional community happens. I was actually going to ask you about that very thing. You mentioned the gender differences just now. How else does this community differ from what you might think of in a conservative religious community? I guess one of my initial surprises was I expected, you know, it's a patriarchal religion. It's men who make most of the decisions regarding religious practice. It's men who have access to sacred texts. So men are really the religious authorities in this community. So I began my research expecting that women would be more passive, maybe a little more subdued perhaps disempowered. And it was really my own biases, I think, coming from a more liberal feminist perspective, because in fact, women in this community seemed very powerful to me. They were aggressive. They thought I was kind of quiet and retiring. And they seemed very clear that they were making a choice about a certain way of life. And they didn't seem to have any doubts or have any regrets that they were missing something in the secular world. Many of the women that I met seemed very confident that their way was the only, number one, authentic Jewish way of life, so that other forms of Judaism really weren't authentic, and also that they, as Jews, in some ways had a monopoly on the truth, that their way was the only way, and that they were the chosen people. So did you go into this community with a very specific idea of what you were going to look at? Yes. I was trained as a linguistic anthropologist, and I was really interested in language, and I knew that gender was a key issue in terms of linguistic competencies. However, as I think often happens to anthropologists, um, when I went and began to actually spend time there, I realized that even though what I had suspected, that young girls were shifting to English after um, first grade, women acknowledged that. I observed girls slowly shifting away in first grade. No one really cared. I talked to a lot of women about language issues, and they said, yes, yes, girls do speak more English. And we talked about the different varieties of English and Yiddish that were sort of evolving in the community. But it wasn't a central concern. What was much more of import to um, the women and the girls that I was meeting was issues of modesty. 
bodily modesty and also comportment and speaking modestly, no matter what language you're speaking, because you can speak modestly in English or in Yiddish, and you can speak immodestly. When you say modestly, do you mean like not cursing or? I didn't see a lot of cursing, but I mean like if you're screaming and using language that hurts someone else's feelings and not speaking in a refined way, which is a a local word that many women strive to reach. It's idle in Yiddish, but people often use the word in English too, refined. If you're not speaking in a refined way, you're sort of rubbing up that distinction between Jews and Gentiles because one of the definitions that little girls hear especially is that Jewish girls, in contrast to Gentiles, are refined. They are innately, their souls are at a higher level. They are um, like princesses. Little girls often made crowns in, in a kindergarten arts and crafts project that says, Snias is Macroin, which is, uh, modesty is my crown. And the teacher said, all Jewish girls are princesses, not like Jewish American princesses, like materialistic, chaffy little girls, but really true royalty chosen by God. You can speak in a refined way, you can act in a refined way, or you can not act in a refined way. You can scream, your hair can be wild and loose, your clothes not properly covering what they should be covering, you're sprawled all over your desk and not sitting straight. So being modest was a real concern. And in some ways, modesty is really definitive of Hasidic femininity, which is what these girls were basically acquiring from you know infancy on. And so I was got really interested in how Yiddish fit into that idea of femininity in terms of modesty and other markers of femininity, like stockings, like skirt length, what kind of skirt. A denim skirt is not as modest as a skirt made of a different material because it's too much like Gentiles. And the word that um, a lot of Hasidic women use is modern to depict a kind of Jew who is too much like Gentiles. So a denim skirt might be too modern. Little girls' dresses are, look, let's go, are, uh, are very fancy because on the Sabbath, girls will dress up and have special dresses called Shabbos dresses, and they often wear petticoats. You can see that some of those are quite, they're old-fashioned looking in a way, and yet, I don't know, they're just very uh, dressy. There's a lot of hosiery stores as well. Yes, because stockings are incredibly important. Like, the kind of stocking you wear is part of signifying what your affiliation is. So if you wear seams, opaque stockings with seams, that's very, very religious. But if you wear sheer or even black, even though that covers your leg more, because they're black, they're considered fashionable. So that's a little bit more modern. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. That's at 7.30. This week on Fordham Conversations, we're talking with Fordham anthropologist Ayala Fader about the Hasidic community of Borough Park, Brooklyn. Fader did field research in that community, and she talked with me about that research in our studios. Let's hear the rest of that conversation. So, so what did you find in terms of the whole language thing? I found that what Hasidic girls and their mothers were basically doing was focusing on continuity. And it was really a historical fluke in a way. Because Hasidic schools for girls were not built until the 70s, primarily among the women that I was studying, little girls' mothers and grandmothers, and sometimes even great-grandmothers, they were fourth generation there, were primarily 
speakers of English. Now, I call it Hasidic English, but it is English because they actually weren't trained in Yiddish. They didn't study Yiddish as an academic subject because the schools that they went to were Orthodox but not Hasidic. So Orthodox schools teach prayer in Hebrew, a mixture of Hebrew and Aramaic, and English. So these girls actually, now women, did not actually learn Yiddish. They knew some, but they weren't so fluent. Now, little girls today are fluent. They receive a true bilingual education, so they're quite fluent. But they see their mothers speaking English, and they want to be like their mothers. And and their mothers are speaking English. So there's a huge emphasis on continuity. And even though Yiddish is seen as a form of continuity, the ways that girls can actually do continuity today is to speak English like their mothers. At the same time, there's a lot of differences among different Hasidic Jews. And so they see their mother speaking English, but they also see that there are certain women and girls who speak more Yiddish than their mothers do. And those girls are primarily, um, and women, are primarily Hungarian Hasidic Jews, often from Williamsburg. They're the most stringent, they speak the most Yiddish, and they have the least rigorous secular education, actually the least rigorous also religious education. They often don't even read from the Bible. They just read Xerox stories or they are told stories because they are the most stringent. That injunction for girls not to study sacred texts is taken to the highest level. But these girls do speak much more Yiddish. And one of the things that I found is that the women that I worked with and the little girls who consider themselves moderates in this world want to be two things. They want to be with it, which I think of as sort of fashionable and knowledgeable about the secular world, but they don't want to be modern. So it's this tightrope that they're walking where they want to know about the secular world and be able to enjoy it when they feel like it. They want to be able to speak English. They want to be able to look nice and wear hip, up-to-date clothing, but they don't want to be too much like Gentiles. They don't want to cross that boundary. So they are really creating a form of Hasidic femininity that attempts to really explode those differences between the secular and the religious. I wanted to get back to the uh, the idea that people don't really care all that much about uh-huh. how language is being used. Yeah. How, I, I'm surprised by that because I kind of feel like when language is being changed to English in a lot of, you know, sort of, I guess, non, I guess this isn't a non-native speaking community, is it? They're native... English speakers and native Yiddish speakers. Yeah. They're both, yeah. In a in an ethnic community. Right. Um, that people are, are quite upset about it, but you say that people don't care. How how is this how is the situation in the Hasidic community similar and different in terms of that? Oh mm-hmm. well, for one thing, there is not an ideology or belief about language purism. In that Yiddish is a mixed language. It has a lot of different components to it. So that um I have, for example, an interesting editorial that and that someone wrote in um, a Yiddish family magazine where he said, we're doing to Yiddish today, because Hasidic Yiddish has a lot of influence from English, a lot of integrated English words. We're doing to Yiddish today, Hasidic Jews are, exactly what we did to Yiddish, sorry, to German in Germany. We're making it our language. So... There's not the emphasis in a lot of communities, especially under the influence of nationalism, there's an idea, I mean, if you think about France, where infiltration of other foreign words is considered a form of imperialism in a way. You know, there's the Academy of Language, and they don't want English words in their language. But because Hasidic Judaism 
um, has always been diasporic. And because there's always been ongoing influence, there's never been this emphasis on pure Yiddish because it probably doesn't exist. I mean, most languages, it doesn't exist either, but at least there's the belief about that. I think what people didn't care about so much, the women at least that I met, there was a tension, I guess is what I'm saying, is that adult women acknowledged that girls were shifting to English and they expressed regret, especially teachers. The school was ha- was increasingly trying to have girls speak only Yiddish among themselves. But because of these other tensions of not wanting to be like girls who weren't with it and because the incredible emphasis on doing what their mothers had done and because of this very strict gender segregation where girls do not want to be like boys and boys do not want to be like girls and there's no crossing, it it was hard to make that demand on girls to speak only Yiddish among themselves and then use English in contexts where they had to use English. But I think language is in this community is just one other way that girls learn to be different from the world around them. And because perhaps the body is so central here and looking different from the people around them, in some ways there's this incredible emphasis on fitting in to communal expectations and learning to control the self in order to really sacralize the body and to be able to control yourself so that you can participate in certain secular realms and still desire to remain a Hasidic person and to work on yourself to become really what God wants you to become. I think there are bigger fish to fry, and language is one small part, and girls are not, through their shifting, ironically, girls actually do reproduce the ways of their mothers. And so it's almost a conservative move that they shift to English. I will ask you one more question, and I'll close with this. What has stayed with you from this research? I think I went into the research with a very secularist perspective on religion. What I came away with was a real respect for many of the women that I worked with, a respect about their seriousness and a respect for the ways that they work on their own sense of faith and belief. Another thing that I really came away with was the cultural nature of childhood. I have kids of my own now, and I got married during the field work. And um, having seen Hasidic child-rearing practices before I had children and now rearing my own children, I often compare the two, and I try to disentangle what's Jewish, what's North American, what's New York, an impossible task probably, but it really, I think, made me reflect on the cultural nature of religion and childhood in ways that I probably wouldn't have if I hadn't been in the community. And also the ethical responsibilities of anthropology and where those lie. And it's not very clear to me still, you know, who am I ultimately responsible to in my writing? And also as a Jewish New Yorker, who am I responsible to in my representations? And I think those perspectives on religion and childhood sort of force you to think about yourself as not only an academic, but as a person also living in a shared world, because it's not as if I left the field and and I never had to talk to these people again. You know, I see and talk on the phone frequently to the women I met, and we share social space. Well, Ayala Fader is an assistant professor of anthropology at Fordham, and she is working on a book about this research. Ayala Fader, thank you so much. Thank you. Did you notice this... Uh... Uh, kosher sushi. 
enlighten your Hanukkah party That's with the best really coasters. Funny. It says place your Hanukkah order today. Yeah. That makes sense. That sounds good. <laughs> That's really funny. It's funny because Chinese restaurants that are kosher are very fancy. It's not like Chinese food that you would be used to that's like a cheap meal at all. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. You can find our podcast at WFUV.org, or you can listen to past shows in our audio archives at that same site. You can also email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, love to hear from you. Thanks this week to Liz Brocklin for her production help on the show. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a fabulous weekend. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.